Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm Cindy House. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, there's so much going on everywhere. I'm sure there's so much going on in your life right now. It is the holiday season, so dot, 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 a lot of madness. Uh, Also, I wanted to say that if you are looking for the perfect holiday gift check out cindyhouse.net there are basic folk beanies available in brand new colors these beanies are hand knit by my mom mom house is what we call her and they are available uh, at our website cindyhouse.net we debuted them at club passim at our basic folk live event recently they sold like hotcakes She is knitting away, and you can find more information at cindyhouse.net. That is also where you can sign up for the email list. All right, today on the podcast, Rebecca Loby, who is a Georgia native that was raised in the Atlanta music community via Eddie's Attic. Rebecca attended Berkeley College of Music and spent time in the Boston music community before settling in Austin, Texas. She also had the unique experience of being a part of the very first season of The Voice. Ever heard of it? She was part of Adam Levine's team and appeared on the show for a couple of episodes and before she exited in a way that she feels extremely comfortable with. Since then, she has uh, built up her career in a very uh, unique and authentic way. And we talk about how she is a musician who really values community and feedback, as well as her never-ending quest to spread kindness in an authentic and meaningful way. I'm very pleased to introduce you to Rebecca Loby, an extremely talented and open-hearted human and musician. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're going to hear a song from her album 2019's Give Up Your Ghost from Rebecca Loby. The first track from the album we're going to hear a clip of called Growing Up. And we'll get to our conversation with Rebecca Loby on Basic Folk. Baby, I really hate to be the one to break the news. You're going to want to play, but we don't get to make the rules. Gotta learn how to roll. Take it punch by punch. Get down and back up. Hundred times before lunch. Growing up, growing old, getting old. Small, feeling big, getting used to it. Breathing in, breathing out, feel the weight of the world they feel. Growing up, growing old, getting over it. I'm growing up, growing old, getting over it. Rebecca Loby, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for talking to me. You were born in Arlington, Virginia, right? And you lived there until you were eight years old. I'm interested to know if you or what you remember from that time in terms of like, I mean, anything significant, particularly about music or art that was in your life that you recall? Yeah, I think I remember a fair bit from when I was little. We lived in a house on third street in Arlington, Virginia. And I remember 
walking around the neighborhood, riding my bike around the neighborhood. I had a, a boundary that my parents gave me, which grew as I grew. So when I was, you know, three and four years old, I was allowed to walk to the edge of the lawn. And then, you know, as I was four and five, I was allowed to walk to the end of the house next door and, you know, just gradually go further on my own until I was able to walk to my friend's house, three houses down. Um, and I remember sort of walking around in my little area of the outside and staring <laughs> up at the sky and singing Disney songs at the top of my lungs, like pretty much nonstop all the time. Like those are some of my earliest memories as a little kid. And you were, um, you were young. I think we're about the same age or a little bit younger than me, but it was like Disney Renaissance yeah. period. So it was like very prime. Yeah, prime. I mean, it was it was the prime good, material. It was the good years. Like I was probably <laughs> six, I think, when The Little Mermaid came out. Maybe five. Saw it in the theater, mm-hmm. and uh, I sang that that song, "Part of Your World" from Little Mermaid, was the first song I ever sang in public when I was six years old at summer camp at the uh, end of summer talent show. I got up in front. Well, of Well, how'd it go over? Camp. You know, it went it went great. My mom cried. And at the at lunchtime, the fifth graders let me sit with them, which as a six year old is, you know, pretty much the height of social power. So those kids are twice your age. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. Wow. (laughs) I thought, man, if that's what the music life is going to be like, I'm in. Sign me up. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You then moved to Atlanta, Georgia. Were you Mm -hmm. living in the suburbs or the actual city? Suburbs. Suburbs, a little farther out than we had been when we were in Virginia. And also, I was taking violin lessons as a little kid in Virginia. And I remembered moving down to Georgia, and the new violin teacher we got was more bluegrass-based, which now I think sounds rad, but as an eight-year-old, I wasn't super into bluegrass, and I was disappointed by the uh, by the shift in um, style. I don't know why. I just wanted to play Suzuki violin mm. songs. <laughs> was that like classical style? That you were yeah, I was. I was learning more classical. I think it was more just about me being resistant to moving to Georgia in general. Like as a as a third grader, it was a sort of abrupt change in the new violin teacher. I just I really liked my violin teacher in Virginia, and so I was sort of dealing with my sadness about moving in the middle of the school year mm. in general, and I sort of took it out on my new violin teacher. So in terms of going back to that comment you made about being sad about moving and then taking it on your violin teacher, in terms of like thinking about that, um, that move, um, do you, do you, how do you recognize that like that huge change in your life made you a more resilient kid? Well, I definitely, it was my first experience with really starting over, which I think happens throughout your childhood. You know, you sort of reset, you get done with, you know, K through five, you start over in sixth grade, and then you start back at the bottom of the totem pole and start over again, get up through eighth grade, just when you're starting to figure out middle school, then it resets again, and you start over again in ninth grade. But when you are the kid, you haven't been through it before. So you're sort of figuring it out as you go. So for me, that mid-year move was a, it's a big deal. I mean, we moved a thousand miles from the only home I had known. I made, you know, I had to start over without any friends and, and, you know, kind of start from scratch for better and for worse. You know, it's like the, you know, any baggage I had socially as a third grader, which I'm not sure how much baggage you could have as an eight-year-old, but it's surprising. um, Yeah, it's surprising. And I I got a chance to start over. Well, in a way, I actually moved twice in three months. I had only lived in Virginia. And then at the beginning of third grade, we had just moved over the summer to a new house. And in a really strange turn of events that I'm sure was a huge bummer for my mom, who, you know, had four children, my mom and dad. Um, My dad's job situation changed almost immediately when we got into the second house in Virginia. So what was supposed to be a one-time move became a very temporary move and the family relocated to Georgia. I forget about it because there was just this three-month period in Virginia where I had started a new school in September and then we moved states in November at Thanksgiving. And that interim school I was at was actually the worst 
of all of them, um, for me socially, I just got off on a bad foot with the kids there. I was the new kid and felt really uncomfortable and had some just embarrassing, you know, early childhood embarrassing moments. And so then we left at Thanksgiving. So on the one hand, it was a bummer to move a thousand miles, but it was actually kind of a relief <laughs> to get to restart after just this two or three month interval in a school situation that wasn't working. Wow. The parallels of your <laughs> eight-year-old life and my life right now are crazy. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's like so great to hear you talk about this stuff. Um, so, okay. Should I just tell you about the most embarrassing thing I remember from that little three-month interval? Because it was it was bad. Yes, tell me. <laughs> uh, okay, sure, yeah. So for some reason, there was a bathroom in the back of my classroom. So I asked mid-class if I could go to the bathroom and I went to the bathroom and I was in there and I mean, I didn't like the school. I didn't like the kids. I didn't get along with anybody, but I really liked the bathroom. Particularly, I liked the acoustics in the bathroom because it was really reverberant. So I started singing and then I was having so much fun singing in the bathroom that I was just like, well, forget this. I don't want to go back to class. I'm just going to stay in this magical room with these bouncy walls and just sing Disney songs at the top of my lungs. And I, I don't know how long I was in that bathroom, but I was just belting out songs, like singing my face off just in this magical little world all by myself. But of course, I was in the back of my classroom where my 30 classmates were having a lesson and could all just hear me, you know, wailing at the top of my lungs in the bathroom. So when I came out of the bathroom, I opened the door and all 30 kids like turned around to look at me and were just laughing hysterically. And it was just so mortifying because, you know, you're that weird little age where you sort of don't know all the laws of physics and how the world works yet. So I just, it hadn't occurred to me that they could all hear me until that moment when I realized they could so what I remember is that at the end of that period was lunch and I was just so in a recess and I was just so embarrassed. I didn't want to move. And my teacher came by and told me that if I didn't want to go to recess, that I could just stay in the classroom oh, wow. if I wanted to. And that's when I was like, oh no, that was really bad. Oh man. <laughs> she was, it, was it she, she or he was probably trying to help. It was a, it was a sweet lady teacher. Yeah, she mm. was trying to help, but she was just like, yo, kid, that seemed pretty embarrassing. Yeah. Do you want to take a half hour to, to sit, the next, oh my sit, God. sit the next round of humiliation out? I feel you. That's got to be That's like, cool. I mean, who knows what that lady is thinking. But like, if I were in her shoes, I would think that like, that would be like one of my most precious memories of just like, oh, this little kid <laughs> just came yeah. and went in my life and you know, belting at the top of her lungs in the bathroom, just like have, having no inhibitions. Yeah, that, yeah, until that day. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't have that many anymore, <laughs> but. Love it. Rebecca, can we talk about your wrestling career? Oh, short-lived, but yes, it was, <laughs> it was something. Yeah, when I was in ninth grade, one of the first days of ninth grade, this girl in my uh, geography class said, hey, there are no girls on the wrestling team. We should join the wrestling team. And me and a few other girls were like, yeah. She was like, they say girls can't be on the wrestling team, but we're allowed to and we should do it. And we were like, yeah. So she's like, cool, I'll see you at practice tomorrow at four. And we were like, yeah. And then I showed up and none of the other girls did. <laughs> so I was there all by myself. We have a bunch of dudes who were not psyched that I was on the team. Um, and I actually made really good friends with one guy who was sort of a misfit on the team. His father and brother were like all state wrestlers and he had no interest or passion for it, but was being kind of forced by this family legacy to do it. So he and I were like a good match and, uh, and we really tried, you know, and I, I actually really enjoyed a lot of aspects of it. I had never been involved in a school sport before and, you know, going, being part of the team, staying after school for, you know, hours of workouts, learning a whole new skill. It's, 
something that I know about myself as an adult is that I love subcultures. I, it's something I love about touring is that I'll be on the road minding my own business and next thing you know, I'm at some 4th of July party in rural Arkansas and it's a group of people who have been getting together every 4th of July for 30 years and every, you know, the same lady makes the potato salad and the same guy brings the brownies and, you know, they have a jam circle. And they have all of this culture to it. And I love that. It's like picking up a rock and peering under it and seeing this whole like bustling village of activity under there. And then you put the rock back down and move along. So I sort of peered under the rock of the high school wrestling team for about four months as a teenager. And I really enjoyed it. Your dad started taking you to Eddie's attic to play at the Monday night open mic. Um, can you talk about the significance of that venue and what playing those open mics meant to you at the time? Yeah, definitely. Well, so where Eddie's Attic fits historically is that it was created in the early 90s, I believe as a collaborative venture of this guy named Eddie Owen, who had been managing a bar that had a good music program called Trackside. And uh, I think that the Indigo Girls were had just started to get big and they had come out of the Decatur music scene and they were either silent partners or somehow involved in launching Eddie's Attic. Um, but it was from the beginning sort of the brainchild of this man named Eddie Owen, and it existed as a listening room venue to showcase singer-songwriters, which is still a pretty revolutionary concept. But back then, when I think a lot of live music was, especially on like a smaller local level, was mostly bar bands and, you know, louder, and it was hard to find a room that had a reverence for the written song. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the space that this venue carved out. And it's not giant, holds 150 people max. And they started hosting a Monday night open mic, which is legendary. The open mic is incredible. A lot of open mics around the country have adopted this format. The format of it is that 15 songwriters each put $5 into the hat and they each play two songs. And at the end of the night, there are anonymous judges who pick three finalists. And the three finalists then get back up and perform a song. And the judges pick a winner. And the winner wins 60 bucks, which is what all of the you know songwriters competing have put in the hat, and gets a spot in a semi-annual shootout. And the semi-annual shootout happens twice a year, where all of the weekly winners who can come back, come back and compete for a $1,000 prize and, you know, fame and glory, time to recording studio, whatever prizes have been donated. And the fact that it is a listening room that is dedicated to singer-songwriters and that the owner, Eddie, was there every week and that there was a cash prize meant that regionally touring songwriters who had nothing better to do on a Monday night would come just basically for a, a shot at winning the money and a chance to audition for the owner. Mm -hmm. I mean, what better way is there to get your first gig than to actually go and perform in person? And what that meant for local songwriters is that you got exposed to a much higher level of talent than most open mics had. And the fact that there was cash prize at the end of the night meant that everyone stuck around. Like a lot of open mics, people come, they play their two songs, and they leave, which is sort of depressing and sad. Mm -hmm. But everyone was motivated to hang in there till the end of the night. And then once you're there for the finals, you might as well listen to who won. And there was just like a higher level of like camaraderie and sort of people, you know, networking and getting to know each other there. I mean, you know, I met a lot of important friends and collaborators. The person who engineered, you know, my first big record mystery prize, I met just hanging out at the Monday night open mic at Eddie's Attic. Anyhow, when I was 15 and starting to show an interest in songwriting, my dad, he was a lawyer downtown, and he heard from you know some other buddies at work, like, oh, you know, we're songwriters going to hang out at this place, Eddie's Attic in Decatur. And my dad took me there, and it was so exciting and fun because I got to, and we, we just went to listen the first time, but I got to hear all of these great songwriters and stay out, you know, have a night out on the town with my dad and stay out past 10 on a school night. Mm. It was all very exciting for a lot of reasons. And then I signed up 
And, you know, you had to sign up like weeks in advance to get a spot. You know, it was pretty competitive. And I went back a few weeks later and performed, you know, my two best songs that I had, you know, I was in 10th grade. They were not very good. <laughs> and I, I would go back as often as I could. And every time I went, I would come home so inspired and I would stay up all night writing and my songs would get just better every time because I'm being exposed to better songwriting. And yeah, it was a hugely, hugely formative part of my adolescence at the beginning of my songwriting life. And then of course I grew up and moved to other cities and I'd always look for the Eddie's attic, but I realized later that, you know, it's a pretty unique place. Yeah, for sure. I think um, I first heard of it when I was in college in Boston, you know, so it definitely has a great reputation of fostering a music community. Uh, you attended Berkeley College of Music where you studied recording engineering. What made mm -hmm. you want to focus on, on uh, recording? Well, I got into audio engineering because I wanted to be a professional singer-songwriter as a teenager. It was just what I was excited in about. Um, but I watched a lot of VH1 behind the music, <laughs> and I saw all sorts of exposés about, you know, pop stars having their sound manipulated in the studio by evil producers, and I didn't want that to happen to me. I wanted to learn what all those knobs did. So... Partially for that reason and partially because I think I thought maybe I needed to have a more practical fallback plan than just musical superstar. Um, <laughs> I, I decided to, to study music but get my major in audio engineering. And then as an audio engineering student, I actually I loved it. I became really passionate about it um, to the extent that when I was in school for a little while, I thought that's what I was going to pursue full time. And then right before I graduated, one of my engineering mentors asked me what I was going to do when I graduated. And I told him that I was thinking about moving to LA and becoming an assistant engineer and trying to work my way up the, the engineering ladder. And he said, yeah, I mean, you could do that, but I've always thought you'd be happier doing something more creative. And I realized like, Oh my God, that guy's right. <laughs> I do want to be an engineer. So, uh, so yeah, then I, I still worked as an engineer when I was fresh out of school, but it sort of rekindled my love of music and songwriting and creativity. And I had been, you know, writing songs all through college, just sort of secretly keeping them to myself. But I used my first job at a recording studio to demo my earliest songs. And the, that those demos became my first record. And once I had a record, I started touring. Another teacher of mine was like, look, you can always come back to audio engineering, but being a touring singer-songwriter is kind of a young person's game. So when you're young and fresh out of school, like, give it a try now. See if you like it. And if you don't, you can come back to engineering, which was also sort of sound advice. I, I mean, if you're working on your 15 or 20-year plan, being like a record <laughs> producer is a perfect way. I mean, if you're sick of the road, <laughs> it's a perfect yeah. way to transition off the road. Um, okay, so you moved from Boston back to Georgia for a little bit and then to Austin, Texas. Tell me what drew you to Austin? Well, I had been touring for a few years. I first came to Austin for South by Southwest in 2006 and I loved it immediately. I didn't necessarily see myself living here then, but I really enjoyed the city. And then I came back in 2008 as a finalist at the Kerrville Folk Festival songwriting competition. And I had heard about this festival from a lot of different people. Again, it's 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 an atmosphere that is catered to songwriting. It's a festival that is calls itself a songwriting festival, not a music festival, and celebrates songwriters, which is an interesting and sort of different approach, I think, for a festival to take. And I came and I stayed for 18 days. I volunteered on the recording crew, put my recording background to work. Oh, man, I and, bet they loved um, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the end of the festival, they had made me a crew leader on the, on the thing, which as a sort of type A joiner person, I was like, hooray, I get to do more volunteer work for free. Great. <laughs> get to work on vacation. I was actually like so psyched about it. And I was on the recording crew for, for several years. Um, and then I didn't win the competition that year, but I made like hundreds of friends at this festival. So the 
following years, 2008 and 9, I continued touring and all around the country, everywhere I went, I was sort of reuniting with friends I had made at the festival the previous summer. And of course, I applied for the songwriting competition again and went back to the festival again the next year. I got into the competition the second year in a row and stayed at the festival for another 18 days. And by the end of that second year, I mean, I just had so many friends like saying, move to Austin, move to Austin. And I kept, you know, I was like, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I wasn't sure. But then my apartment was sublet in Georgia because I was touring so much that it didn't make sense in my mind to pay for an apartment. And I kept coming back over the next like six months or so to Austin and staying with friends in between every tour. I would just rather than go home to Georgia, even after my sublet ended and I was paying rent on my apartment there again, I'd still spend most of my free time coming back to Austin, play gigs in Austin, staying with friends, making excuses to be here until finally about in like November of that year, I was in my bedroom in Atlanta for the first time in months. And I looked around and realized, I don't live here anymore. I moved to Austin <laughs> and, uh, and I just gave notice to my, my best friend, who was my landlord, the next day and packed up my stuff and officially moved to Austin. That's great. Wow. Um, okay, is it okay to get into the voice now? This is the voice. That's yeah, right. Yeah, let's do it. Um, how did the voice approach you? Um, I got an email from my website from a woman who had uh, heard my CD and liked it, and she asked if I'd like to come to a private audition. It was the first season, so there weren't a ton of people auditioning in general, but they had, you know, a cur- like an open call audition, and then. Um, they, they invited me. So I got like a scheduled time in the middle of all these open calls. Hmm. So I went, how did they actually, the interesting thing too, is that she asked, I had links on my website of like friends. Like, if you like me, you'll probably love these 25 other songwriters. Right. And the woman who had heard my CD went to my website and then checked out a bunch of the people I had linked to and asked if like 10 of my friends and I would like to audition. So I asked all of those friends and about half of them were interested. So I set up auditions for all of us. Oh, wow. Did you get a, um, a finder's fee? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, how did you select Nirvana's Come As You Are as your audition piece? There was, it's not a very glamorous story. There was a long list of approved songs that they wanted us to rank in order of preference. Um, they were like songs that had been cleared legally and cleared by the music supervisor team. And this was before the audition process was totally done. I'd already gotten a call back to go to LA, but it wasn't for sure that I'd actually be on the show. And they said, you know, take this list of a hundred songs, rank your top 50 in order of preference. And most of the songs I did not care for. So anything I knew and I liked automatically went in the top 10 and Come As You Are was one of them. I think I ranked it as maybe my sixth choice. And I think that, you know, then they do a match where they, you know, take, you know, match different songs to different singers. And I think that Come As You Are seemed like such a unexpected choice mm-hmm. for me, for them, that they, that was one of the two songs that they assigned me to do for my final callback audition. Mm-hmm. And then I, I remember getting that assignment and I was like, oh, shit, now I have to figure out. <laughs> how to perform this. Like I'd never done it before. So, so, you know, I, I I really vividly remember sitting on the kitchen of my dad's house on the floor in the kitchen with my guitar in my lap, like scrolling through the internet, looking up chords to come as you are and like trying to figure out an arrangement for it that I could live with. And, uh, that made it fun for me to sing and that, felt, you know, respectful to the original, but also put my own spin on it. And cause I'm not going to sing it the way Kurt Cobain does. Like he nails it. He doesn't 
no one needs to hear me imitating mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's how that came to be. I found this quote from you about your performance about. Um, you said my first ninety second performance terrified me so much that my whole body shook the entire time. Later, I realized that what scared me so much was that I was there specifically to be judged. The experience illustrated to me with crystalline clarity the difference between being judged and making a living as a touring singer-songwriter. Can you talk a little bit more about that realization and what it meant for you as a professional musician? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's so weird because there's no significantly terrible consequence to doing badly on a show like that or to not advancing to the next round. But I was so scared in that moment and it it was completely disproportionate to like reality of what would happen. Mm. Um, The adrenaline was so intense and, you know, I was so scared during that performance that you would have thought that if I didn't get picked that like a trap door would have opened into floor and I would have gotten <laughs> sucked into a pit of flames. Right. But in reality, I actually had my first tour in Europe booked. My record mystery prize that came out in 2010 had gotten picked up for a record deal in Europe and the label had booked a three week really good tour of the Netherlands and Germany. And it was my first time ever to perform over there. And I'd spent a year getting that all set up. I was really excited about it. And that tour started three days after my blind audition. So if I hadn't made it in the blind audition, I would have just caught a flight to Amsterdam and gone on tour in Europe for three weeks. Like I had an excellent plan B. And instead, you know, so it was kind of, I, I knew it was kind of win-win. It was like I'd either get picked for the show and then go through whatever experience the show was going to give me, or I wouldn't get picked for the show and I'd go on tour in Europe. And I already was making a living as a singer-songwriter. Like mm. things were going to be fine either way. Yet, I was still so scared, and it was many months, maybe even years later, that I was able to really articulate the quote you just read, which was like, oh, what was so scary about it is that it was a purely judgment-based experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I'm up on stage performing for an audience of 150 people at Eddie's Attic, they are not there to judge me. They are there to share a creative experience with me. And if I make a little mistake, if I make 10 little mistakes, it's fine. Like we're all on the same team. Like they're not there to judge. And that was such a liberating discovery. And it is, it remains the best thing about doing the show for me was having that difference illustrated so clearly for me. Cause I probably would have gotten there eventually. I think that that I see that level of comfort and confidence in a lot of seasoned performers people have been doing it for decades but it probably would have taken me a while to reach that conclusion on my Mm -hmm. own without you know the show sort of fast forwarding me to that realization well you seem like you're a musician and a person who really values community and connection especially within your musical community can you talk about why you value that and how you stay connected to your community yeah definitely you know it's hard and it requires really specific effort. Um, and I'm sure that's true for everyone, but doing what I do, you know, I'm on the road 150 to 200 days a year. And a lot of the times I don't get to see other musicians in the course of my touring because of the math of it. You know, it's like, we all have to be at separate venues playing shows to our, you know, playing to our own ticketed audiences in order to make a living doing this. And so there's not a lot of opportunity to socialize with other musicians unless you really make an effort to make time for it. And the things that I do to make sure I'm connecting with other musicians include going to conferences and festivals and events where, you know, I know that my musical brethren will be hanging out. Mm. So that's things like Folk Alliance or maybe NERFA or SURFA, which are like the regional versions of the Folk Alliance Conference. Mm -hmm. Making sure to go to South by Southwest, occasionally hosting events at South by or at Folk Alliance that I can then, you know, invite other musicians to participate in and create opportunities for people. In my hometown of Austin, I went for several years where I was hosting a songwriter event on Monday nights modeled after the Monday night songwriter hang of Jack Hardy, who's a, was a folk singer in New York who, yeah, he hosted 
singer-songwriters at his house every Monday fast for folk? pasta dinner. Yeah, for pasta dinner, exactly. And they would, you know, socialize for about an hour and then all circle up and play their newest songs and give each other sort of gentle, or sometimes not so gentle, feedback on the new songs. And Jack did that every Monday for 30 years. And I loved it. I had the uh, opportunity to go a few times when I was touring through New York before he passed away. And I started a group like that in Austin. And it's it's faded a little bit as my touring career has gotten a bit busier over the past few years. But, you know, I go through seasons with it. And it immediately made me feel more plugged into the Austin songwriter community. Because mm. I'm on tour so much. I had lived here for years but felt like I barely knew anybody. And when I started doing that, suddenly I had this group of friends that were, you know, important to me. And I had a role in their lives, you know. Mm. Um, so that was great. And I, you know, in any creative field, I, I recommend figuring out what your version of that is. Either find a group of people who are getting together, you know, whether it's a, a book club or a meetup or, you know, sharing poetry, sharing essays, whatever. It doesn't have to be weekly. It could be monthly, quarterly. Find a group that does that. And if there isn't a group that does that, start one. It was the best thing I could possibly do for my social and creative life in Austin by a mile. And then the other thing I like to do is collaborate. Um, you know, the best way for me to spend time with other musicians is to go on tour with them. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, for months or starting a new band, although I have done that recently, <laughs> but can even just be like a, you know, a five day co tour or open for an artist who you find inspiring and see how you can be helpful to them on the road. So those are all things that I found helped me foster those connections. You should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, Okay, here's another quote. Here's me quoting you to yourself again. Um, sure, bring it on. You said, as a rule, I try not to put much stock in defining a person by their profession, a dangerous tendency that we all have in this culture. Um, and then you go on to talk about how your brain, your heart, your your music, your life, your ego, your livelihood, identity are kind of all rolled up into one volatile little package. How do you find an identity outside of being a musician um, and how is this struggle going for you? It's a great question. Um, it is hard. It is a constant struggle and I'm not great at it. I have been sort of single-mindedly obsessed with this career of mine for like 15 years. It's been the first thing I thought of every morning and the last thing I thought of before I went to sleep most nights. And while that has helped me build a sustainable career as an independent singer songwriter kind of against the odds mm. um whether it is psychologically healthy i'm not sure mm -hmm. and even just this year as i was sort of facing some of my biggest professional triumphs i signed a record deal for my new studio album i had you know the support of a texas label helping me reach more people than i'd ever reached before i had a great publicity campaign i got Love from Rolling Stone and NPR and all this good stuff, all the stuff that I had been wanting for years and years was finally happening. And in the midst of it, I picked up a suitcase at an airport and threw my back out and suddenly I was done. Oof. And I had to go to bed and stay there for three weeks. I had to cancel a tour in England and Scotland because mm. I couldn't get out of bed. And then I, you know, gradually kind of did a bunch of physical therapy, came back from that, you know, worked very closely with a doctor, got a lot of, you know, deep tissue massage and like MRIs and got cleared to start moving again. And then almost immediately in about a month later, started having these weird, like kind of bug bite looking things on my shoulder that I realized were hives. And I'm still battling for months. I've been battling hives, just this sort of like mystery stress related skin thing. Wow. So I don't know if this is like a gross answer to a really simple question, <laughs> but the answer is, I'm not quite sure <laughs> yeah. how to healthily balance a all-consuming career in the arts with being a normal human because I haven't figured it out. Mm. I'm still trying to figure it out. So what I'm looking at is for the next year, dialing back my touring a little bit and sort of carving out time with a little more intentionality because mm. I'm very much a super turbo fired optimist. And I just 
believe that everything's going to work out. There's going to be time to do everything I want to do. I make these monstrous to-do lists to, of everything I want to try and get done in a day. It's usually about 12 times more than a human could reasonably do. <laughs> and I only get a third of it done. But, you know, I've gotten pretty good at forgiving myself at the end of the day for not getting through my to-do lists because even though they're unrealistically ambitious, I still get a crazy amount done because I set such high goals for myself. But I don't really schedule myself super carefully. Mm. You know, I just agree, commit, say yes, take it on, move forward, and then I find myself super overtaxed and then you know my body gave me a really really clear message this summer which was like this can't go on forever right. this way so what I'm taking from it moving forward is like yeah I can still make a living as a musician I can still be a touring songwriter but I just have to be a little more careful and a little smarter about it Um, the new album, Give Up Your Ghosts. I love that um, you have a mission statement for the album. It's one of the lines on the record. Give up all your ghosts, at least the ones you love the most. They're never holding you as close as you are holding them, which, man. Oh, God, so true. Um, so I have a couple questions about some of these songs. Um, Growing Up uh, is one uh, a song on the record that is a as somebody wrote is a clear-eyed look at the ways women are still required to bounce back from what the world throws at them a uh, hundred times before lunch, um, which man that that rings true. Um, so I am I've been working with college students lately, like Generation Z, and mm -hmm. I I identify as like an older millennial. And I'm interested in your perspective on this. If you've had a chance to talk with different generations of women about this kind of stuff, personally, I find it like really inspiring to talk to like Generation Z about how they view this kind of stuff and wondered if you had had experiences like that. You know, I haven't really one on one. I don't have a lot of Gen Zers in my life. Um, but from a distance, and I think like you, I identify as an older millennial, um, I watch what they're doing and I'm, I just marvel mm. and I, I marvel at their perspective and clarity and sort of borderline militants on issues of equality. And it seems to me that, you know, every generation, you know, the waves, push further and further out, you know, and it pushes out and comes back a little and then pushes farther out and then comes back a little, but it's all progress and it's all, you know, moving forward. Mm. Um, and I just, I just, I'm just very impressed by the overall ethos of that generation. Oh, same here. Yeah. They, they point stuff out to me like that I wouldn't even consider like, definitely the things that have been said to me, like, in front of some of these college kids, like, are pretty, like, they're they're just, like, hurtful things that men are saying to me. But, I, you know, when they when they tell me, you know, from their perspective, what they see, I, I think, like, oh, yeah, that really was shitty. <laughs> you know, it's, like, kind of crazy um, where, you know, we just we just accept it as, like, older older young women like we just kind of accept right. the fact that like oh this is how men talk to women and whatever but yeah anyways i loved um i love the sentiment there um also the song popular um uh you say we all look back on our adolescent selves and feel like we were total awkward losers even the popular kids who intimidated me or the mean kids who bullied me uh probably feel that way now which Man, there's a lot there. Um, and I'm wondering, like, what kind of conversations have been fostered for you around this topic? Um, maybe not even since you released the song, but, like, since you've been thinking about that. Yeah, that that one has just hit with a lot of people in a way that, again, that's a song that kind of 
bubbled up from beneath the surface of my psyche, almost unbidden. You know, it just started, the words just sort of started spilling out and I captured them. It didn't really require much shaping or laboring from me. There were a few lines where, you know, I, I spent significant time trying to get get it just right, but the overall sentiment of it just sort of spilled out. And I have found that, yeah, it just, it has really connected with a lot mm. of people. And I've had some really, really meaningful, like post-show conversations, you know, people come up to me and say, you know, that one really hit them. Um, I actually just got an email this week from someone who, it was Thanksgiving and he was just writing to, to thank me for one of the other songs on the record, which maybe it's just totally inappropriate to bring this up, but it really shocked me. Um, cause he, he said that he's been listening to the song ghosts every day for months and that it has had a significant impact on his mental health and has made him mm. commit to try to be a nicer person. And I just lost it when oh, I got wow. that email, I just started crying. Um, cause human kindness is the most important thing to me. That is my whole outlook on life is that if we could just be kinder to each other in the smallest interactions, and I make a really annoyingly bright effort to just <laughs> be nice to everyone I meet, strangers, panhandlers, people in customer service, people who are mad at me, grumpy sound people, you know, anyone, whether or not they have something to offer me, I try and just be nice. And as a result, people are generally nice to me. You know, it improves my quality of life immensely. Um, but I just think that it helps so many people. If, if you're nice to everyone you meet, then those folks are most likely to be a little nicer to the rest of the people they encounter that day. So it's improving the days of everyone that they're going to encounter. And it just ripples. And that's been my, you know, that's been my guiding you know, mode of operation mm. since I was about 20. And, you know, basically it was because I was working as a bagger at Whole Foods and I dealt with a bunch of cranky rich people all day long. That'll do it. Okay. I got one more question for you. Bring it on. The South. How does it inform you as a person, as a musician? Well, I might play into my niceness thing. Um, you hear a lot about how people in the South are friendlier and, you know, I personally, I believe that people everywhere are the same amount of nice. It's just like a pie chart dividing up where the nice shows itself. Mm -hmm. You know, people in the South might give you 80% of their nice up front and hold 20 back for behind the scenes. People in New York, it's cold out and rent is really expensive. They don't have time for that. They'll give you 10% of their nice up front and just save the other 90% for, you know, once you're better friends and can really you know foster that relationship mm. so I don't know I think that perhaps the the big smile friendly vibes are a little bit of a southern trait um and perhaps as I've grown I've sort of had a soft spot for southern accents and you know the uh storytelling aspects of traditional country music I'm not a big twang person but um I definitely appreciate a lot of these like connection and storytelling of, of old school country. Um, but yeah, and it's funny cause I grew up in Northern Virginia, which as a kid I thought was the North. And it was only when we were moving to Georgia and I was complaining about moving to the South that my parents said, you were born in the South. Back yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? I was. So I've never really identified as Southern, but that's probably, you know, my mom's from DC and my dad's from Chicago. So, oh, yeah. you know, I've got sort of more of a Midwest, Midwestern identification, yeah. but now I've lived in Texas for 10 years, it's the longest I've lived anywhere as a grown up. So, wow. you know, I definitely am comfortable in the South. Great. Um, okay. So we do this thing on basic folk called the lightning round, where I ask you, very simple questions about yourself and you give like one or two word answers sure you ready here we go first song you learned on the guitar joey by concrete blonde wow 
Uh, what is your vocal register? Uh, you know, I was a soprano when I was younger, but probably not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you read music or play by ear? I can read music. It doesn't come up very often anymore. Um, so mostly by ear. What is your karaoke song? Ooh, uh, I will survive. Nice. Uh, dogs or cats or something else? Uh, I guess dogs. Favorite U.S. City? I don't have either. Ah. <laughs> I can't keep a plant alive. <laughs> um, favorite U.S. city? Ooh, that is a hard call. That is a really hard call. Uh, it changes day to day, but... I would say it's a, right now it's a toss-up between good old New York City and Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Wow. Um, favorite teacher? Suzanne Schull. She was my middle school music teacher. Nice. First album you bought with your own money? Mm. I cannot remember. I think... This is a quintessential question. Yeah, I know. I know. And it'd be good to have the answer. I remember... <sighs> All right. The first few CDs... I, I, I never have a good answer for this question. It was somewhere in between... Uh, <laughs> Salt and Peppa, Very Necessary. Nice. Ace of Bass, whichever that record was in like 1992 or whatever. You know, the sign on it. Um, and the Bodyguard soundtrack... Wow. And there might have been a Mariah Carey record in there. But I can't... It was like one of those four, but I can't remember which one. But they all came pretty quick. So, but that's where my brain was in ten, in when I was 10 years old. Those are good choices. <laughs> <laughs> Dream collaboration. Say Dolly Parton. Nice. Uh, what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Santorini in Greece. Oh, Great. Man, good answers. All right, Rebecca Loby, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. What a joy. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy with support from Lindsay Myers, who is our business manager, Adam Corey, as well as Alex Stanton from Townspeople, who does our music here on Basic Folk. I'm Cindy Howes, and I produce this podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. More information is found at my website, cindyhouse.net, and we will see you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.